six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Kristen Billings and I'm filling in for Esty Dinner. Today, we'll be talking about the Supreme Court's recent attack on tribal sovereignty and how the performing arts can play a role in the fight for indigenous rights. You may have missed it amongst the flurry of June's historic rulings, but last Wednesday, the Supreme Court issued yet another devastating decision. This time, the target was tribal sovereignty. Breaking with nearly 200 years of precedent, the 5-4 majority opinion authored by Justice Brett Kavanaugh ruled that the state of Oklahoma can now prosecute crimes committed by non-Indian people against Indian victims on tribal lands. In most states, criminal jurisdiction is shared between tribal and federal governments with little interference from the state. Though eclipsed by the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's ruling in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta has been described as an assault on the foundation of Indian law and a threat to the integrity of tribal self-governance across the country. Conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in the dissenting opinion that, quote, a more ahistorical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom. Today, we're joined by Mary Catherine Nagel, a self-described sovereignty hobbyist, to discuss the Supreme Court ruling, as well as her creative work exploring Indigenous history and struggles. Mary Catherine is a leading Indigenous lawyer, acclaimed playwright, and an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She currently practices law in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Mary Catherine, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, and thank you for talking about this case. So to start off, before we dive into the Supreme Court ruling, would you mind describing the concept of tribal sovereignty and why it's so important? Yeah, so tribal sovereignty, you know, it sounds like a really big, fancy term, but it's really quite simple. And it's just that, uh, you know, it's a recognition that, first of all, tribal nations predate the United States. Um, We also predate when, you know, 1492, when Christopher Columbus got lost in his search for India and landed over here. We predate many things, including the creation of the U.S. Supreme Court itself, as well as the ratification passage of what we now know to be the U.S. Constitution. So tribal sovereignty takes that into account and understands that our nations are inherently sovereign. And what does it mean to be inherently sovereign? It means that you are a government, a nation of people that has a right to self-govern. And self-government includes the right to ensure the safety of your citizens, to protect them in their own homes, to provide for public safety and welfare. That could be food, it could be clothing, it could be shelter, it could be trade and commerce, it could be um, you know, police services, it could be a fire department, it could be victim services. That's sovereignty. I think from an indigenous perspective, sovereignty encompasses even more because of the history of genocide in this country. And I've heard many respected elders say, well, sovereignty is when I speak my language. Because for years, the United States tried to eradicate indigenous languages on this soil and has had great success. Many have already been eliminated, but many are still preserved today. I've heard people say, well, sovereignty is when the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court issues a ruling. That's sovereignty. 
right? We have, so there are many different ways in which tribal nations remain sovereign today and maintain their inherent sovereignty that predates the United States. Great. So you grew up in Oklahoma and you're a leading lawyer in the fight for tribal sovereignty. Um, As someone who knows the state and this legal battle really well, it would be great if you could help our listeners understand what led to this ruling and what it means for tribal nations. So to start off, what exactly was at issue in this case? Well, at issue in this case, this case was one of over 30 cert petitions that the state of Oklahoma has paid millions of dollars to its attorneys to file since July 9th, 2020. So tomorrow will be the two-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in McGirt. In McGirt, the court held that Congress had never abolished the Creek Nation Reservation. Really wasn't that surprising of a holding if you just look at the plain letter of the law, which is that once the United States signs a treaty with a tribal nation, and that treaty is ratified by the U.S. Senate and signed by the president, under the U.S. Constitution, that treaty is the supreme law of the land. And if that treaty creates a reservation, which the treaty at issue in McGirt did uh, in the 1860s, the United States signed a treaty with Creek Nation, and that treaty created a reservation, that treaty remains in existence until or unless Congress actually passes legislation to abolish the reservation. So in many ways, the holding of McGirt was not monumental because it was a simple application of the law. Mm -hmm. But it was monumental in this respect. Oftentimes, unfortunately, as we've seen with Castro Huerta, tribes lose not because they lose under the law, but because they lose when the court adopts settler expectations of diminishment of tribal sovereignty over the law. And Oklahoma had an expectation that even though Congress had never abolished the reservation, if they just spent enough money on attorneys and made enough arguments, the court would do the work of Congress and abolish the Creek Nation Reservation. We have a governor right now in the state of Oklahoma who really does not want tribes to continue to exist. Um, that's, you know, seems shocking to a lot of people today, but as indigenous people, it's a reality we've lived with since 1492. And, you know, Governor Stitt in the state of Oklahoma is nothing more than a reflection of people like Andrew Jackson or other American officials that have fought for the eradication of tribal nations. His ideas are not new. And in fact, what he is fighting for right now is exactly what Oklahoma fought for in 1907 when Oklahoma became a state. Now, Oklahoma failed at that time to succeed in getting Congress to abolish tribal reservations when it made Oklahoma a state. And so now Oklahoma is trying desperately over 100 years later to accomplish what it could not accomplish in 1907. So Oklahoma was very upset with the decision in McGirt. And the governor spent $100 million on PR firms following that decision um, and and got some good traction. I mean, if you read, there's articles in the Wall Street Journal that describe the decision in McGirt as this gigantic public safety crisis. Uh, Those claims are very unfounded. And in fact, as two indigenous one of full disclosure, one's my sister, uh, Rebecca Nagel, and her colleague Allison Herrera wrote in the Atlantic in early April of this year. Those numbers are completely unfounded. There, there just is no documentation to support the kind of thousands and thousands and thousands of numbers and data that Oklahoma claims that you know, oh, the McGirt decision means we've got thousands of criminals running loose on the streets. Not true. Um, however, Oklahoma put those numbers in its briefs. 
And then Castro Huerta said to the Supreme Court, look, if you're not going to reverse yourself, if you're not going to undo your decision in McGirt, the least you can do is give us criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian crimes against Indian victims on tribal lands. Now, that's something no federal court has ever done, because for as long as the Supreme Court has opined on federal Indian law, the Supreme Court has consistently held that that's a constitutional authority assigned to Congress and not the courts. The courts don't get to decide which sovereign has criminal jurisdiction over what kind of crime on tribal lands. That is only something Congress decides. And Congress has legislated consistently uh, in that area over the years. And Congress has given jurisdiction to specific states at specific times over the categories of crime on tribal lands that Oklahoma wanted in this case. But here, you know, if you read Justice Kavanaugh's majority decision in Castro Huerta, he just bought Oklahoma's false narrative that McGirt created a public safety crisis. The problem with that is in his outcome determinative decision is that there was no law to support the outcome. So he did judicial judicial gymnastics to get to a decision where he could decide that Oklahoma now and that all states now have this criminal jurisdiction. And so it really is a decision that is just completely untethered to any precedent, any language in the US Constitution, or anything that we have historically understood before July 2022 to be federal Indian law. So what implications does this case have for tribal nations both in and outside of Oklahoma? That's a great question. I think we're still trying to figure that out. Um, You know, in one way, this case is very limited in terms of what Justice Kavanaugh was deciding and what he wrote for the majority is a case of statutory interpretation. Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court to decide whether Congress and passing the General Crimes Act precluded states from exercising this kind of criminal jurisdiction. And Justice Kavanaugh interpreted the General Crimes Act and concluded that actually states have this kind of criminal jurisdiction. So in one way, this is a case about the General Crimes Act, and that is pretty narrow. But the way in which Justice Kavanaugh got there is alarming, I think, for a lot of Native women's rights advocates, people working to end domestic violence and sexual assault against Native victims. And and it's concerning for our tribal leaders, our Indian law scholars, really anyone from Indian country who reached this decision. And I I think what's disconcerting, really, is, is just how much Justice Kavanaugh was willing to make up the law to get to the outcome he personally desired and that Governor Stitt desired. I think there's a lot to be feared in that because at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court can truly make up the law to get to whatever outcome it desires, you know, that puts all of us at risk. And it especially puts Native women and children at risk. And that is because in 1978, the Supreme Court made up the law and took away tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian, on-Indian crimes on tribal lands. And that decision is known as Oliphant. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that gives the Supreme Court any authority to take tribal jurisdiction or sovereignty away. If anything, only Congress has that authority. But the Supreme Court, like it did in 2022, in 1978, took it upon itself to take that jurisdiction away. And in 2022, it gave that jurisdiction to the states. And so we're living in a world now, if you're a Native victim, you're living in a world where, I mean, imagine 
imagine if you're a citizen of North Dakota and the Supreme Court says, you know what, North Dakota, you don't have criminal jurisdiction over crimes committed by citizens of Montana when they come into North Dakota land and commit crimes against North Dakota citizens. Because you know what, citizens of Montana can't vote in your elections and it's just not fair for you to be able to exercise any criminal jurisdiction over them. And you take that away and then 44 years later, you're like, you know what, now we're gonna give that jurisdiction to Montana. Montana, anyone who's not a North Dakota citizen but commits a crime against North Dakota citizens on North Dakota lands, Montana, you now have that criminal jurisdiction. You know, maybe Montana argues that Montana will do a better job than tribal governments. That's certainly one of Governor Stitt's arguments. I think that's also unfounded and based on uh, prejudice. But at the end of the day, I think most people would understand that that's going to leave North Dakota citizens less safe. Well, it's the same thing for our tribal citizens. The, the data shows, history shows, there's all evidence indicates that Native victims are most safe when the government closest to them and with the greatest interest in protecting them, their government can protect them in their own homes. The Supreme Court's taken that away and given that authority to states, and it will help the state in its efforts to appease the funders of Governor Stitt's election and campaign, which is oil and gas, and other industry interests who have funded um, a massive effort to undo the Supreme Court's decision in McGirt because they don't like the idea of tribal sovereignty. It will assist those corporate efforts, but it's not going to help our Native victims of crime in the state of Oklahoma or in any state for that matter. Relatedly, does, in your opinion, this decision signal a federal or national trend towards the further chipping away at treaty rights? I think, you know, I think I'm not sure yet. And I will say that because it's really hard to square this decision with, I mean, just look at any of the decisions this court has issued in the last five or 10 years. I mean, McGirt. Herrera, United States versus Cooley, Dinezpai, Isleta. All of these decisions respect tribal sovereignty. They respect treaty rights. They look at the plain language in the Constitution, the treaties, the laws Congress have passed, and they apply the law as it, as it is written in the, and as it is intended. This is a real outlier from all of those decisions. So is it an actual indication that the Supreme Court is moving away from its recent trend to simply apply the law in treaties, the U.S. Constitution, and federal statutes. It could be, and that would be very alarming. But it could also be that for whatever reason, this is just a case where five, or uh, I guess, sorry, yes, five of the justices felt particularly strong about Oklahoma's $100 million PR campaign and wanted to give them what they asked for. Um, and, and I think that there's, there is something unique about how much money Oklahoma has spent trying to undermine the McGirt decision and how much they've been able to rope in institutions like the Wall Street Journal to kind of serve those purposes on a national scale. You've got Governor Stitt going on Fox News, giving really crazy sound bites about what it means to be Indian and what it doesn't mean to be Indian. Um, you know, all of this messaging created by a massive PR effort, I think had a huge impact in this case and in the, the five votes that Oklahoma got. And, you know, the one difference between Castro Huerta and McGirt is Amy Coney Barrett. 
right? Justice uh, Ginsburg passed away after she voted in um, in favor of affirming the continued existence of the Creek Nation Reservation in McGirt. Amy Coney Barrett has taken her place, but Amy Coney Barrett voted on the side of tribal sovereignty and treaty interpretation and applying the plain language of the law in Isleta, in Dinez Pai, which she authored, um, you know, in the United States versus Cooley. So I just, I'm not sure that this is necessarily a trend, that this, this may just be an outlier. And what can be done then in states like Oklahoma to fight for recognition of tribal sovereignty or to push back against the Supreme Court decision? You know, I think that in terms of the pushback from this Supreme Court decision, I mean, history is just repeating itself. Nothing's really new, you know? And I think at the end of the day, that's what we all need to remember because I think sometimes we can forget in this post-summer of 2020 world just how much our history still, well, really what happened with the murder of George Floyd and all the movements that followed from that uh, was, it was, an, it was a movement forward in terms of some change that came from that. But at the end of the day, it was also a reminder that our past is still with us and we haven't moved past the legacy of slavery and genocide. And those um, realities and the racism that allowed those legal structures and institutions to enact those horrific human tragedies, those attitudes that allowed for those human tragedies still persist today and they still are with us. And so, you know, people sometimes will say, God, it's just shocking that Governor Stitt would say something like this or like that. But if you look at Oklahoma's history and how much Oklahoma, the Oklahoma officials at the time of Oklahoma statehood tried to eradicate tribal nations, then you can understand the pushback to McGirt, right? If you look at what happened in Standing Rock and how oil and gas wanted to and did destroy the burials of 27 indigenous people who were buried in one of the most sacred of sacred locations, it was for the Great Sioux Nation, it was their Arlington Cemetery, right? It was a sacred burial ground, and the tribes, including Standing Rock and others, stood up and said, do not put the pipeline here because we have people buried here. This is a sacred place for us. It's a cemetery, basically. What did, the, what did Dakota Access Pipeline do? As soon as the tri- former tribal historic preservation officer on the Friday before Labor Day filed a document in federal court in D.C. identifying the location of the graves, at 6 a.m. the next morning, Dakota Access was out there bulldozing them. They destroyed those graves. There was no response from the North Dakota law enforcement or the federal law enforcement at that time. And again, people were shocked. Well, (laughs) look at the history. And oil and gas has destroyed sacred sites and native lives. They have, you know, the, the explosion of extractive industry in North Dakota has brought with it a rapid increase of sex trafficking of native women and children of homicide of Native women and children. And these kinds of issues just reverberate throughout history because we've never had a full reckoning with them. And until we have that full conversation about these issues, things aren't going to change. There will continue to be Andrew Jacksons 
and oil and gas companies that want to fight tribal sovereignty like they did at Standing Rock and like they have after McGirt by funding uh, Governor Stitt's campaign to undo the Supreme Court decision. So I think, you know, um, we are just seeing a repeated cycle in history here. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Kristen Billings, and today we're talking with lawyer and playwright Mary Catherine Nagel about the Supreme Court's recent attack on tribal sovereignty and how the arts can raise awareness about indigenous struggles. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via a Public Affairs Facebook page or on Twitter at WORT Talk. Now that we've had some time to break down the Supreme Court ruling on Castro Huerta, I'd like to talk some about your work as a playwright. Typically, people don't think of law and the performing arts as closely related fields. What is the relationship between these two parts of your life? Well, uh, I am a playwright and an attorney. And, you know, I really feel strongly that part of the reason why we have horrible outcomes in the U.S. Supreme Court is our complete erasure from the curriculum in K-12 education, from the curriculum in law schools, from arts and entertainment. And the fact that as of today, American theaters are more likely to produce plays that use red face than plays by native playwrights about native people and native lives or tribal sovereignty. So for instance, look at plays like the public theaters, bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, which they took to Broadway just 15 years ago, right? Or less than 15 years ago. They are for now just announced they're producing the first play by a native playwright in the history of the public theater ever. And they're a major theater in New York. They're the theater that brought us Hamilton, right? They're producing Madeline Say It's Where We Belong. That's fantastic news, something that all of us native theater artists are celebrating. But if you're looking at these art institutions that even for liberal people are celebrated as these leaders of, of creating American culture, and they're teaching us that native people are just a joke or something to be dehumanized on stage, how can you expect our courts to treat us any differently? That's our justices, our judges consume American culture through movies, theater, television, opera. And until very recently, we didn't have any native written content coming out of Hollywood. We now have two primetime native shows, Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs. That's a huge accomplishment. But, you know, it is just now starting to change. And so it's all interconnected. But until very recently, as Native people, we weren't allowed to share our own stories. Our, who we were was defined by others. And it is no coincidence that Andrew Jackson was elected to be president on a campaign platform of eradication of Native peoples. When at the same time, the same year he was elected president, the most popular play in the United States and on Broadway was a play called Metamora, which was red, it was used red face. And the message of that play was, hey, you know what? Native people are inferior savages. And it's, and it's kind of sad that they're going to die out, but they're on their way out. They're not going to make it. 
because they're, they just don't know how to survive in this civilized world. And uh, actually, it was called Metamora, comma, or the last of the Wampanoags, i.e. the idea being it's okay if we actively participate in genocide because the eradication of Native peoples is inevitable. So don't feel guilt, white America, for eradicating these people because they're just, they, they're inferior and they don't have what it takes to live in a democracy or a civilization that is built on progress, right? And the ultimate irony of that, of course, is that the principles of democracy enshrined in the U.S. Constitution come from our indigenous nations, like the Cherokee Nation, the Muscogee Creek Nation, Haudenosaunee, who had confederacies and who had democracy on the local ground level. Um, we didn't have a centralized government. We had a very diffuse democratic government um, of the people, by the people, for the people, um, even more so than what the United States ultimately ended up with, quite honestly. But that was a model that Benjamin Franklin and many other founding fathers used and built upon um, in creating the United States democracy that we know today. And so to really support genocide in the early 1800s, we had to have a culture that believed and promoted this concept that, hey, hey, these people are they're inferior. They're not civilized and they're just not going to make it. And that was Andrew Jackson's message. Right. And and he was supported by the arts and entertainment industry of the United States at that time. And of course, you know, when I say that Metamora was the most popular play on Broadway, we didn't have radio. We didn't have TV. We didn't have film. We didn't have YouTube. So, you know, theater still is really powerful today. I mean, just look at the hold that Hamilton had on this nation and continues continues to in many ways and other plays. Right. Broadway is still. A, a real uh, driver of American culture, and so is theater and the arts. But of course, we have TV and film too. But back then, it was only theater, and so you really understand the harm that Red Face did to our people historically, and the fact that American theaters today continue to be more interested in Red Face than plays by Native playwrights continues to be incredibly harmful. Could you tell us how you came to theater and how you became a playwright? Well, I was uh, maybe just a storyteller from a very young age. I used to make up stories with my two younger sisters, and I would force them to act them out. Um, and so we would be doing performances for our neighbors in our front yard and in our house uh, all throughout the summer and sometimes on weekends. And um, I just, from a very young age, loved to write stories. And so then when I was about in middle school, I started auditioning for plays to be an actress. And I loved acting and I acted in high school and in college. But um, I wrote my first play for a student playwriting contest when I was in college and it won and it got produced. And I loved that. I loved having my play produced. It was an incredible experience. And I kind of said to myself, wow, I got to I got to keep doing this. Uh, and so I did. I just I, I just never stopped writing plays and um, you know I have worked some with TV and film and I very much enjoy that work as well very much so but I think my heart is in theater because there is something very magical about the shared experience of an audience and a story on stage all in one enclosed building and that kind of communal storytelling that can only take place in theater. Well, because it's so relevant to today's topic, I was hoping you could tell us about what inspired your play, Sovereignty. 
Yeah, I have to say, um, reading Castro, uh, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, I mean, Justice Kavanaugh over claims to overturn Wooster versus Georgia and claims that when Chief Justice John Marshall wrote Wooster, that that was, quote unquote, a misunderstanding of federal Indian law, which is not true. That's just his way of overturning a precedent today in 2022. And yeah, you know, Justice Gorsuch's dissent starts off with Wooster v. Georgia. So reading Castro Huertas was very personal for me because my great, great, great grandfather worked on Wooster v. Georgia. He was an attorney. He was one of the very first Native attorneys in the history of the United States. Of course, back then you could study law and you could write briefs, but you couldn't make arguments in courts because no federal or state court would allow you to practice law because if you were an Indian. Now, my relatives could practice law in the Cherokee Nation court system, just not the state or federal courts. And so they, of course, had to hire William Wirt, the former attorney general under John Adams, to argue the case in the Supreme Court on behalf of Cherokee Nation. But you know, the Gilcrease archives here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, have the papers of, of former Chief Cherokee uh, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and in his papers are these lengthy letters that he and my great 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 grandfather John Ridge wrote about. Here's the language in this treaty. Please cite this in the brief. Here's this language. Here's this argument. I mean, they were intricately involved in the legal arguments that Cherokee Nation made in Wooster v. Georgia. Um, you know, when the case uh, was being argued, uh, Principal Chief John Ross sent my great-great-great-grandfather to D.C. to be there for the arguments. I mean, this was, this was a case that my family fought for, and it was a victory that my family secured, as well as our nation. I mean, many fought for this. But it's very personal because when Andrew Jackson refused to enforce the Supreme Court's decision in Wooster v. Georgia, Chief John Ross sent my grandfather, John Ridge, to meet Andrew Jackson in the White House and to ask him, why aren't you enforcing the Supreme Court's decision? The Supreme Court has declared the law of the land and your job is to enforce it. And Andrew Jackson's famous line that he said back to my grandfather, John Ridge, was, well, John Marshall you know, has made his decision, let him enforce it which of course is not how the separation of powers works under the U.S. Constitution, but that is what led to ultimately the Trail of Tears and the forced removal of our nation and um, the deaths of thousands of Cherokee people. And so it's, um, it's, it's a trauma that we still carry with us today, anyone who's Cherokee. And, and, and I wanted to write a play about it because so few Americans even know about it. And I think it's really important for all Americans to know this story. Um, you know, I wish more theaters would produce this play. You know, it's been produced in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's been produced in Olympia, Washington, in Marin County, California, and, and Washington, D.C. Um, very important place for it to be produced. But, you know, I wish um, a theater in Georgia where they have a history of passing laws to eradicate the existence of my nation and fighting the sovereignty of my nation. I think a theater there should produce this play. I think, you know, um, I think a lot of theaters could produce this play. So, you know, it, it's, it's clearly relevant today when you've got the majority and dissent in a Supreme Court decision that just came down debating whether that case is good law and resting basically everything 
on whether or not that case is good law and writing at length about the facts of that case. And, you know, it is interesting to read this dissent where Justice Gorsuch starts by talking about Samuel Wooster. Well, Samuel Wooster is a character in my play, <laughs> you know, and, and fun fact, actually, um, Justice Ginsburg came to see the play when it was in D.C. at an arena stage. And it was very sweet. She came backstage afterwards and took a photo with the entire cast. And then afterwards wrote me a lovely note and said that she thought the play was simply wonderful, that it taught her a lot about tribal sovereignty. Um, and it was just a very kind, very generous note that she took the time you know, out of her in incredibly busy schedule to send me basically a thank you note for my play, which was something I will never forget. So the play moves between the past and the future. And in that way, it reminds me of certain works of speculative and science fiction, which use time travel as a device to explore undertold parts of American history. So I'm guessing, I'm wondering, why did you decide to manipulate time in the way that you did in your play? Well, one thing that I've consistently heard from uh, non-Native artistic directors at theater institutions that have not yet produced a single play by Native playwright a lot of what I heard, especially from theaters in New York, is that they're not interested in Native plays because their audiences want, quote unquote, contemporary stories, which is a really ignorant comment to make because it presumes that there are no contemporary stories about Native people. Um, and I thought a lot about that because I lived in Manhattan for five years. And the whole time I lived there, I didn't see a single New York theater produce a single play by a Native playwright, except for like our Native theater companies, which is like fine and great. But, um, you know, they're just like struggling to even raise a few pennies to produce a Native play. And the theaters that are incredibly well funded, like the public and others, um, you know, off Broadway and on Broadway, weren't producing any plays by Native playwrights. And I really thought about that comment because they were all kind of saying similar things. Well, we just need contemporary plays. Sorry, that's what our audiences are interested in. And it kind of goes back to the erasure of Native people, this idea that I guess we only exist before 1900, like we don't exist today. And I, th I thought about where that takes us. And I think that a lot of the promises, I mean, the problems, excuse me, a lot of the problems that we have today are actually re repeated problems that were acted out on indigenous peoples historically in the United States, but now they're happening to everyone. Climate change, other things that come from um, policies that you know started as you know a colonial policy of the United States, but now they have dire ramifications or they have negative consequences for people alive today. And I wanted to show that connection between past and present. That if we don't if we don't actually acknowledge the past, we're doomed to repeat it in the present. And also talk about things of, of ways in which we can heal the past, because I am hopeful that we can do that if we actually acknowledge it and talk about it. And I also wanted to, to say, hey, what happened in the past is relevant today, and we're still here. We've survived all of that, and we're still here. So I wanted to make those connections. And that there are people, you know, I wrote this play before Governor Stitt was elected, um, but Ben in Sovereignty, you know, the actor who plays Andrew Jackson plays Ben. Well, you could totally vision a play, envision a play now where the, you know, actor who plays Andrew Jackson plays Governor Stitt, right? I mean, because the past is just repeating itself. And I really wanted to show that by connecting past and present. We have a listener question from Michael. Why was the small, why was a small band of Cherokee permitted to remain in far western North Carolina after removal? 
You know, that's a really great question. And I would defer to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, which is the federally recognized tribe that um, Michael is referring to, uh, for their answer to that question, since I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. But I've, I've done work with Eastern Band and my understanding of their history. Again, I would defer to them for the full version and accurate version of their history is one, many of them hid in the mountains and in caves and, you know, hid from um, the soldiers who came to forcibly remove the Cherokee. Many of them escaped and ran back home. But two, they also were able to arrange an agreement with the state of North Carolina to have um, their own community set aside there. And they remained there and they stayed intact. And if you go there, they have that continuity, right, of sovereignty. They have a government, they have their language, they have culture. Um, They're not some random group of people who claim to have a Cherokee princess for a grandma several generations ago, which is a common problem we have with a lot of people, especially in the Southeast, but all across the United States. Everyone claims to have some sort of Cherokee grandma, so um, which is a whole other issue. But um, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians are a legitimate sovereign Cherokee nation. Um, and I encourage folks to to connect with them and to check them out. And they are, you know, that is our homeland. Um, they're not very far from the Kadua Mound, which our origin story tells us that is where we come from. That is where we began. That is where we um, first came into life. And it's a very special place for any Cherokee person. Um, and I think that um, it's very important that the Eastern Band today has been able to maintain those lands and protect them so that future generations of Cherokee people can go home and have a connection to our ancestral homeland. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Kristen Billings, and today we're talking with lawyer and playwright Mary Catherine Nagel about the Supreme Court's recent attack on tribal sovereignty and how the arts can raise awareness about indigenous struggles. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via a Public Affairs Facebook page or on Twitter at WORT Talk. Switching gears just a little bit, I'd like to talk about your work on issues impacting Native women. You've counseled the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center and have exper- expertise on the unique challenges of ensuring safety for Native women and children. With the overturn of Roe and this ruling on Castro Huerta, it seems like the Supreme Court has undone a lot of progress made on the fronts for both women's and Indigenous rights. I was hoping you could speak about the connection between tribal sovereignty and protections for Indigenous women. Yeah, so most of my day-to-day work is um, working as an attorney for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, which is a a nonprofit that focuses on the eradication of domestic violence and sexual assault against Native women. You know, today, Native women and children face the highest rates of domestic violence, homicide, sexual assault, trafficking, higher rates than any other population in the United States. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, of course, you know, I think, and as Sarah Deer has written in her, in her, in many of her books um, and acknowledged, you know, the violence against indigenous women began with Christopher Columbus's arrival here. You, all you have to do is read his journals and he brags about all the indigenous women, his, he and his men raped, kidnapped and murdered. Um, the U.S. Army did the same at massacres um, 
like Sand Creek. There's many accounts of U.S. soldiers raping Cherokee women on the Cherokee Trail Tears. You know, these systemic forms of violence against our Native people were practiced by governmental institutions historically, and they've never been, there's never been a reckoning nationally where we've said, you know what, that was wrong. That actually shouldn't have happened. The United States is now going to apologize. We're going to have our moment like, you know, we've had with other historical issues, and we're going to say this is wrong, here's how we're correcting that. Um, we're sort of starting to have a moment right now where the United States is acknowledging its role in the U.S. boarding schools um, that the military created and opened across Indian country and across the United States with, you know, the, the U.S. Secretary of the Department of Interior kind of taking the lead on acknowledging that, and that's really good. But when it comes to violence against the Native women, we haven't had anything like that. And so culturally, we still live in a culture that accepts that as a normative practice and as an accepted practice and as something that's okay to do. And you can also see that by the continued dehumanization of our Native women. So a part of that is the red face. So plays like Bloody Bloody, Andrew Jackson, and Octoroon, Peerless. These are contemporary plays that promote red face. And you have the also the you know exotification of Native women. So Pocahontas, Halloween costumes, the idea that Native women's bodies should be used to sell beer or um, other kind of products really contributes to a culture, again, that doesn't see Native women as humans, okay? They're either a joke on stage or a Halloween costume. Um, so that's an issue. But the laws at issue compound the cultural problems. And the laws are simply that the Supreme Court in 1978 took away the right of our tribal nations to protect our own women and children from violent crimes committed by non-Indians who come onto tribal lands and commit those crimes. And the Department of Justice has reported that the majority of violent crimes committed against Native people are committed by non-Indians. So what you see is the ramifications of the Supreme Court's 1978 Oliphant decision is that today, tribal nations do not have jurisdiction to prosecute the majority of violent crimes committed against their citizens in their own homes. And just last week, the Supreme Court decided to give that jurisdiction to states who have a very um, clear record of abdicating any sense of responsibility in protecting and preserving safety for Native victims. They're not protecting Native victims off tribal lands where states have jurisdiction right now. You know, you look at places like Bighorn County off of the Crow Reservation where they have primary and exclusive jurisdiction to prosecute the homicide of Native women and girls, and they're just not. They're not investigating a single case right now. And I represent several of those families out there. And they're just that's just one example of many, many examples of states completely ignoring safety for Native women and victims. And I will say that that's the norm. That's the majority of state and county and local jurisdictions. But there are some really great examples of places where states and local counties are taking the lead in, in rectifying that. And I think of like King County in the state of Washington, where they've hired a Native woman to run their cold cases unit to start to look at these homicides of Native women in King County where that have gone uninvestigated and to say, you know what, we're going to put resources towards that. And we're going to start taking the homicide of Native women in our jurisdiction seriously, which is something that most state and county jurisdictions just never have done. So we're, we're seeing some, some progress on that. But by and large, 
taking this jurisdiction, what the Supreme Court has done is taking this jurisdiction away from the states and given it, I'm sorry, taking it away from tribes and giving it to the states. And that is devastating when it comes to safety for Native women and children. We have a listener with a question on the line. Pam, you're live. Hi, uh, my name's Pam. I really am enjoying your show, and I'd love to see your play. And I just wanted to ask, I saw a presentation by Debbie Reese, and she was talking about Hamilton and about the absence of Indigenous people in, in Hamilton, and I was wondering what your opinion about Hamilton was. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Pam, for that question. I really appreciate it. And I... I actually, I love being able to answer this question because I thought a lot about this. And when I saw Hamilton, I will be honest, I was deeply disappointed because I know what indigenous nations contributed to the form of US democracy that we understand today, to the actual language in the constitution. Tribes are the third sovereign mentioned in the constitution. It wasn't just the federal government and states. Tribes are in the constitution. We, are, we were there before the birth of the United States were the reason the United States could even exist because of the treaties signed. I mean, you know, one of the first things George Washington did when the United States became the United States was immediately sign a treaty with tribal one of the with the Delaware Nation and then the Muscogee Creek Nation because France was doing that, Britain was doing that, Spain was doing that, and George Washington knew that if he if the United States did that, they would be showing the other international nations, hey, we're a nation too, right? So the United States used our sovereignty to legitimize the sovereignty of the United States. And there was no recognition of that in Hamilton. And I, it, you know, as a native person, it felt like a slap in the face. Now, that being said, I also feel like we are hardest on our other writers of color and our other artists of color. And what Hamilton did was it said, hey, these stories about what it means to be a patriot and to love our country and to love democracy can be told by brown people too. It's not just a white story. And we can put brown people on Broadway and we can revere them and celebrate them. Um, and it doesn't have to be just a white story. And there's something really powerful in that. And what Lin-Manuel Miranda was doing too was normalizing the story of immigrants, right? Alexander Hamilton was an immigrant, and that is so brilliant and so smart because the whole immigration narrative today is really messed up, right? I mean, you know, George Washington was an immigrant. I mean, come on, right? Like, he's not indigenous. So they're all, Thomas Jefferson's a freaking immigrant. But, um, and Alexander Hamilton was an actual immigrant in terms of not having been born on this soil. And, and the, what he did with the immigration narrative was simply brilliant. And I've thought a lot about this because our indigenous stories aren't clean either. And by that, I mean, so for instance, Cherokee Nation has a history of slavery. My nation has a history of slavery. We owned slaves. We had laws that allowed for slavery. Does every play by a Cherokee playwright need to be about slavery? I mean, if we start to say that every playwright of color must address every injustice or every role that another community of color had in their play, I think we're going to do a disservice to our writers of color. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda should be able to write a play that targets normalizing the immigration narrative without having to deal with every other community of color's narrative. 
But that's why we need our American theaters to also produce native playwrights so that plays like Hamilton can be done, but then also a play by a native playwright can be done so audiences can get both and can get all of the above. Just like we need to see plays by differently abled playwrights, you know, playwrights who maybe um, have different capabilities or lack of abilities in terms of what we would traditionally call handicaps or playwrights by LGBTQ two-spirit plus people, right? Like, so no, like, I feel like sometimes putting the expectation on anyone who's not a white cisgendered straight male um, to, to kind of make sure everyone's voice is included is just unfair. And it kind of starts to undermine our actual goals here. So I really appreciate that question because I think um, that's an important conversation. Well, we're running out of time. So I wanted to ask maybe one final question, and that's what can our listeners do um, if they are interested in becoming involved for the fight for sovereignty? Um, how might they educate themselves or how can they contribute to the push to recognize treaty rights? That's a great question. So I know, you know, you're there in Madison, Wisconsin, and we've got lots of really great tribes there in the state of Wisconsin. And there's a fight for sovereignty right there in Wisconsin with all of those tribes. And I would reach out to those tribes. You know, those tribes have um, domestic violence programs. They have tribal coalitions that are working to eradicate violence against Native women. You've got their, um, you know, organizations that are working to address MMIP there in the state of Wisconsin and to support, um, you know, the ending violence against um, Native women. Specifically, there in Wisconsin, you have the Waking Women Healing Institute, led by Kristen Welch. And I would recommend reaching out to them and saying, what can we do to support the work that you're doing to address MMIP within Wisconsin and violence against Native women within Wisconsin? Um, and of course, there are many other important issues that relate to tribal sovereignty, like you know, environmental justice and the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is under attack. Um, but I, I'm, you know, an advocate that works on MMIP and violence against Native women. And I, I really believe in the work that Waking Women Healing Institute does. And so I'm sort of biased and I, I recommend folks reach out to them. But really any Native organization doing good work in Wisconsin, I recommend connecting with. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks to our guest for the hour, lawyer and playwright Mary Catherine Nagel, and to our producer, Rochelle Wilson, and engineer, Summer Koff. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I'm your host, Kristen Billings. Up next is Melon Floyd, and you're listening to listener-sponsored Community Radio WORT 89.9 FM Madison.